The book Rooting for Rivals casts a powerful vision. It describes how taking a generous, collaborative approach towards others, even with our competitors and potential rivals, can turn the world on its head. Doing that is not just the right thing to do, it can dramatically expand the good fruit of our work. That all sounds great, right? But this kind of rare open-handedness doesn't come naturally to any of us. Sure, we'll help out when the cost is fairly low or the payoff of collaboration is high, but to root for rivals even when the cost feels steep and we get little credit and the payoff feels small, well, that's another matter. That kind of generosity only comes from something much deeper. On this episode, we have the opportunity to hear from Peter Greer on the deeper choices that help grow us into the kind of people who not only can go the distance in long, hard journeys of justice and mercy, but also who can sincerely root for rivals along the way. To Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medefend. Well, I am here with Peter Greer, and the truth is, I am not just looking forward to this conversation, but I'm also excited for more people to get to know you personally, Peter. Um, Peter is a articulate speaker, he's an author, an effective leader, the head of an organization that I greatly respect. Uh, Hope International. But more than that, what I value most about Peter is what I observe and have experienced in his character, his his heart, warmth, open-handedness, winsome, a great question asker. So Peter, welcome to Justice in the Inner Life. This is a tremendous privilege. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. So Peter, just so folks can get you to know you a little bit better, tell us first just a little about your family. Yeah, so I am a husband to Laurel, and dad to Keith, Lily, and Miles. And uh, that I love that that's how we're starting this conversation, because uh, those are my most important titles and job descriptions of being husband and dad uh, to this family. Um, we've also been active in uh, foster care and uh, also international adoption. And so uh, on so many levels, not just the professional level with Hope International, but also with our family uh, and adoption and foster care. Uh, very much appreciate the support, friendship, community of CAFO as well. Um, so that is our family. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were talking just before, of course, we started recording here, but the about how so often these what seem to be different spheres from the outside really intertwine the local engagement with kids in foster care, supporting family restoration here in the United States, but then uh, inter-country adoption and then serving in countries all over the world uh, so often come intertwined and I love love how you have uh, you know lived that and that's that's the core, that's your heartbeat yeah well I have so much appreciation uh, for Laurel my wife and uh, really the 
local engagement uh, has been something that she has been passionate about as a as as uh, as as a leader uh, in our home and in our community. And I have so much appreciation for the way that she opened my eyes and my heart to some of the needs that were not just far away, but also the needs that were right around us in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, the foster care uh, journey that we've been on has. Our eyes and our hearts have been open through this process as well. So Mm. I I agree with that and love that, that this is not an either or. Uh, Do we care about kids far away or do we care about kids that are in our own backyard? Uh, We don't have to choose uh, on that uh, oftentimes. And it is possible to have a local and a global uh, application of uh, what it means uh, to love God and to love our neighbors. Absolutely. Well, t- tell us a little bit about how you're living that internationally, because you have that's a big part of your work today. Your 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 day job, maybe your night job too, sometimes with Hope International. Tell us just a little bit about that work. Yeah, sure. So we're really focused on the uh, microenterprise development uh, space. And so I know a lot of listeners are very familiar uh, with this as a tool, but really the basic premise and the founding story of Hope International was a church partner that uh, was receiving aid and, and, and a lot of good things. And, and that was so right. It was so appropriate for a time of crisis. But there became a different time, and the time shifted from being a time when the greatest need was relief to the greatest need became how can this community become empowered to use their own gifts and abilities to provide for individuals in their community. And so it really was a pastor in Ukraine that said, your help isn't helping us anymore. And so shifted uh, the conversation and shifted from an approach that was primarily about uh, meeting uh, immediate needs, which again is so good and right to a model that was looking at the gifts, capacity, resources that individuals already had in their community and walking alongside in helping individuals start small businesses. And so kind of the summary of Hope International is uh, we introduce uh, individuals to the hope of Jesus and we help provide uh, jobs and employment uh, in places of financial poverty. So Jesus and jobs is maybe the most concise way to talk about what we do, but operate in 16 countries. Uh, we serve about 900,000 families and uh, really excited to see this growing conversation of realizing that part of the way that we care uh, for individuals includes uh, thinking about employment. Uh, it includes the gift of work. It includes the idea uh, that individuals around the world have the same heart to reach out and care for individuals in their communities. And so how can we empower them uh, to do that? So that's uh, that's my day job, having an incredible team of Hope International and remarkable partners here and around the world, and so privileged uh, to do this work uh, together. Absolutely. Love that. And, you know, and, and of course, while, while some may think, okay, what does this have to do with orphans and, and the Christian Alliance for Orphans? Well, you know, I believe absolutely everything, that when, when we look at this full spectrum and say, you know, it all starts with trying to keep families together. If that is possible, if kids can grow up with their biological parents, uh, that's always the first goal. And uh, Hope is is an organization that plays a critical role for hundreds of thousands of families, enabling them to thrive so that those kids don't end up uh, orphaned or or needing needing a new place, which sometimes happens. And then Christians are called in to step into that space, too. But uh, this is where it all starts. So really grateful for that work, Peter. Uh, and I appreciate that. Just one one real interesting thing that that uh, we've, we've seen time and time again is, is it's not just that if you help a mom and dad, 
uh, have more of an income that they are able to provide for their children. What we have seen with Hope International is as individuals have more resources in the community, they're ready to care for vulnerable children mm-hmm. in their community as well. So it's not just about uh, strengthening the family and making sure that poverty is not a reason why kids are separated from from moms and dads, but it actually is seeing that there is a local response as well as individuals have more means. I love celebrating the stories. I think of Severa, who uh, started this uh, entrepreneurial adventure, and and now she has adopted eight uh, orphans in her community uh, there. Wow. And, wow. and so I celebrate that. And, and those entrepreneurs that we serve around the world, seeing their generosity, seeing their faith in action, they're an inspiration for us, for me and my family to say, how can we do more? Um, so I love this, the family strengthening and also with more economics, with a little more uh, financial resources. I love watching how they are opening up their home to more and more kids as well. Amen. That's great, Peter. That that is the vision, right? That is it's the local church in every place being the first answer for for those young people who who need that love and support. Uh, and we, just a little, little more. What 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 kind of drew you to this in the first place? Because you you I know you spent some time in the business world, but the bulk of your your life's vocation up to this point has been serving folks around the world. What what kind of woke your heart to that in the first place? Yeah. So I had the incredible gift of having a mom and dad. Uh, who did not just uh, read the Bible, uh, but they lived it. <laughs> they lived what they read, um, and uh, and very much an outward expression of of their faith. And part of that was going on trips around the world and seeing the issues. Um, and growing up, I felt a little bit of this disconnect, though, because I had an interest in business and entrepreneurship. And at that time, never it, it kind of when you look back, you realize uh, maybe how crazy this was, but. I, I never really connected uh, the issue of of poverty and and lack of discipleship and and all of these issues. I I never saw business as more than the funding mechanism. Mm-hmm. And 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 today I realize oh how wrong how much I missed out. And I love that there's so many more examples, uh, so many more examples to celebrate of people that say our faith influences everything that we do. And business is a powerful tool that we have to address so many of these other issues that we care about. Um, and, and so I love that. And, and so when I first heard about uh, microfinance and microenterprise development, I was in Russia, and it captured my interest. But my interest wasn't just in microfinance, but there was this absence of the church seeing these tools. Uh, and so really, I would say my career has been spent on not just how do we grow and learn and improve these tools of savings groups and microfinance institutions and small and medium enterprises, but how do we use them within the church as a way to address, yes, the physical poverty, but also the spiritual poverty. And so microenterprise development, but also uh, as a church, remembering our full and complete mission that we have and trying to bring these worlds that sometimes can feel separate to bring them together. And again, maybe it's Maybe it, it doesn't work, but for me, this idea of Jesus and jobs, it, it, it resonates uh, with me about uh, these, uh, this idea for the church to see employment as a key part in the way for us to love God and to love our neighbor. Yeah, yeah. The work isn't just a necessary evil, but it's actually something that preceded the fall, and it's it's and we we find our in, in many ways some of our richest joys and purposes in life uh, in discovering that right. 
Yeah, well said. Why are you more eloquent talking about this no, than I am? <laughs> <laughs> You're the man on this, but I love I love learning from you. Well, okay, so so let's dig into the leadership element just a little bit, Peter, because you are not only a leader, but you are. I really see you as a student of of leadership and leaders, and you, you've written on a number of important leadership themes. And I would say something I have felt um, just so keenly recently is a longing to see more Christian leaders who look like Jesus. You know, people whose presence feels like the grace and winsomeness and attentiveness that Jesus continually lived. And and I can't, I, you know, I could be wrong, but I think that's probably what most of us are yearning for. You know, not just um, impressive speakers or witty uh, writers with big platforms or, you know, sharp executives with, with great skills, but but women and men whose character really feels like that presence of the grace and calm and goodness of Jesus. And sometimes that's hard to find. And I, I'm wondering, you know, because you, you interact with so many great folks, as, as I do in this realm and beyond, are, are there certain threads that you see in the lives of people where you really notice that Jesus-like presence, certain common threads or elements in, in their lives and habits and choices? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I think part of what I, I have seen and observed is the leaders that I have the greatest amount of respect for, um, the one maybe common characteristic uh, is they understand how much they need Jesus. Mm. Uh, they understand that uh, all of this and a bigger platform without Jesus simply means a bigger uh, place to fall from. Mm. Um, mm. And there's this understanding but uh, and, and reliance on the grace of God. Um, and, and because of that, there is the, a, a, a walking with humility. Because of that, there's structures that they set in place to say, God, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Help that not happen to me. I need you each and every hour. I need you. And so this position of dependency, this position of understanding uh, the need to receive God's grace before we can ever give God's grace uh, is a consistent theme in the leaders mm-hmm. that I have the greatest amount of respect for. And then I think the other uh, interesting piece is uh, individuals that uh, also aren't afraid to admit when they get it wrong or they don't have it all together. Uh, that is another consistent theme. And it's almost like the more confidence we have in 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 receiving God's grace, we can stop pretending that we all have it all together. We can stop pretending mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that that somehow there is this separate category of of. Uh, of individual, the separate class, uh, and instead, uh, there is this wonderful acknowledgement of, yeah, and let me, let me boast in my weakness, because when I boast in my weakness, it is so clear that this good that is happening, this is not from my intelligence, it's not from my strength, uh, but let me tell you the story of Jesus. So, I love the outward focus, I love the uh, the boasting and weakness, and I love the recognition that uh, without God's grace, uh, with this this work, this impact, it is impossible on our own. Hmm. Well said. So well said. You know, it, it does strike me that 
it seems like so often in history, whether whether looking over the last 2,000 years or looking at the biblical record, so many of those whom God has used in really significant ways, there was a time of crisis or, or at least what we would say a time in the wilderness prior to that significant work. And often literal wilderness, right? You think of Moses spending 40 years chasing sheep in in the in the desert and how that must have felt like such a profound um you know loss where he he had a heart for justice right and he was stepping up and then ended up running away from Egypt and and chasing sheep and uh, and of course David was you know shepherd and running from Saul and even Jesus had his 40 days in the wilderness and so it seems like that is what uh the common thread that cultivates precisely what you're talking about, right? The humility, that sense of utter dependence, the sense that I do not have all that it takes to be a great leader and need to draw from a source beyond myself. Yeah, yeah. Once again, well said. Uh, can I ask you a couple questions here? We just shift the podcast. Uh, that's, that's Sorry, the that's not the deal here, Peter. <laughs> oh, man. No, well said. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Peter, I know, you know, speaking of... Of, of moments of wilderness, I, I know, and you've you've been very transparent about a time when you were um, you were you were leading well. You were doing great work. I think everyone from the outside would have said Peter is killing it. Um, but you experienced a time of of serious exhaustion, uh, even burnout. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well. One thing to have a conversation with you, Jed. Another thing to talk about this with uh, the listeners here as well. But, <laughs> no, I, it is. It was. It, it was a time, and and it was a time of rapid growth. And uh, looking back on it, um, you know, I I was more excited about growing an organization than I was about recognizing the gift that it was to to grow a family. Um, and uh, looking back, uh, I, I, it was very easy to look at the way that I was spending my time, the way that I was spending my 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 energy, and to realize that I was giving my family leftovers. And again, so thankful to have Laurel in my life. Uh, she is by far the most influential person uh, in my life. And uh, I did not fully realize how much uh, my life was going to be on a different and better track after she said I do. Um, and uh, and so at this time, uh, she called me on it and she sat me down and said, Peter, I love you. Peter, I'm committed to you, uh, but I don't feel anything for you anymore. Uh, and that was a turning point in my life. It was a turning point in my marriage. And in many ways, she helped me begin the dismantling process of having too much of my identity wrapped up in what I was doing vocationally and missing out on this high and holy calling, not just to be involved in external service, but but to be involved in loving the people that are closest to me. And the stats are overwhelming. There are too many of us that are involved in Christian ministry, leadership of one type of another who are doing great things externally, and yet there is a sense of resentment that is growing and building at home. And my heart breaks uh, for that. I can feel a little bit of that based on my experience. I can feel how easy it is for that to happen. And yet I want to be someone who has this integrity of what we do externally uh, matches what is not just happening internally in our heart, but also 
under our roof and with the people that are closest to us, that they also are, are realizing their worth and their value um, even more uh, than sometimes the, the things that might capture uh, headlines of external service. I, I, I am more and more convinced that what we do at home uh, is is more important than uh, anything that we do outside uh, mm. as well. And Peter, why, why do you feel like we, and I say we sincerely, not just you, but me and, of course, many other leaders, uh, women and men, uh, often do put more emotional energy, more attention, more focus on those things that are far away rather than those that are near? Hmm. Yeah, once again, I want to flip the question on you, Jed, because uh, I want to hear your answer to that. You've been doing such good thinking on this, uh, and I remember hearing uh, you talk uh, about some of these. But, you know, maybe part of it is uh, the myth of our own importance, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that the work at uh, that we're doing externally is 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 uh, is we're the only person that could do it. So we don't delegate. We don't empower others because look how important I am. Maybe it's from a sense of uh, missing out uh, actually in our theology of, uh, of of God's calling on our lives. And and maybe we do a little bit too much of equating this external service uh, with what it means to to actually follow Jesus uh, wholeheartedly and miss out on what's closest to home. Maybe it's that we get more accolades or external mm-hmm. praise from the work that we do, and we don't get that same amount of perhaps recognition by doing the dishes, uh, even though that probably is the most important thing we should be doing at that moment. So I think there's lots of, of reasons, but seriously, Jeb, why, why do you think that is? Hmm. I, you know, I, I would resonate with everything you said. I, I think there's, you know, both a, a good as well, well as negative impulse towards wanting to do big things, do big things for God, do big things for justice. And so um, we get caught up in, in these projects and programs. We may want to go look towards government. Uh, you know, here living in Washington, D.C., I feel like there's an impulse. You, you don't want to work with a shovel, right? You want to get behind a big earth mover because you can do more good that way. And so you, you orient towards government or big machines like NGOs, rather than that small, faithful love of the neighbor. And and there's, again, good reasons for that, right? We want to do a lot of good, but I think so often that really does then um, pull us away from, from loving those nearest. And I, I know for myself, sometimes I just even have to confess that it is it is actually easier well to, to love someone or some issue that is far away than to love those that are nearest, right? Um, you can you can uh, control that environment. You can put in what you want, but then nothing more, right? Where when you're you're seeking to work out a, a fight or a conflict with your buddy or with your spouse, of course, or your children, you, there's a conflict or difficulty, or just waking up in the middle of the night to feed a baby. Those things, in some ways, are much harder than uh, running an organization or, or doing something in, in the far off and abstract. I think there may be one other really important factor here, too. I, at least I know this is true in my own life. Uh, and that is the question of where we get our sense of identity from. You know, I, I know for me, when I am finding my identity and sense of self-worth in 
um, my reputation and how others see me and whether I feel that I'm accomplishing meaningful things, when my identity is found in those things, it really becomes hard to do those small, humble acts of service that aren't likely to build my resume, that won't get any credit or praise in public. Um, that, that is just, it's almost impossible to, to joyfully yeah. do those yeah. things when my identity is coming externally. But when my identity is rooted in the fact that I am the beloved child of God, completely apart from anything I'm going to accomplish or achieve or my reputation, then I feel like that really frees us to love and serve joyfully, even in things that won't be noticed, changing a diaper, preparing a meal, helping someone when it's never likely to get public attention. It frees us to do those things joyfully because our identity is already set. It's not hinging on the next book we write or speech we give or organization we lead or any of those things. What a gift that is. Mm. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Jeb, one of the things that I did, never wanting to go back to that point, uh, was wrote my resignation letter and gave it to Laurel uh, so that if she ever did feel that I was not being the dad or or husband, uh, which is my higher calling than vocationally what I do, that I would walk away from a job that I really do love. I love what I get to do, but I love my family more. Um, and so if there was ever that conflict, I wanted to make it very clear that there is not a choice uh, between uh, where where my higher love is. It is God, uh, it is Laurel, it is uh, kids. And and then it is work um, yeah. and yeah. Uh, making sure that, that that resignation letter has been a simple way to make sure that I don't uh, confuse that again. Mm-hmm. Well, we will sit, circle back on this theme in a couple different ways, but it just strikes me, Peter, that, you know, what what the world needs most from Christian leaders, and this is you and I and pastors and homemakers and school teachers and, and social workers, what, what the world needs most is, is not just kind of effective leadership skills, it needs wholehearted leaders. You know, people who can bring, again, that, that the presence of Jesus, the love, the attentiveness, the gentleness, the calm, and we won't be doing that if, if our home life is um, you know, some a tertiary priority for us, and and uh, and so it it strikes me that if you know if we're deeply committed to our leadership roles, if you're deeply committed to leading hope well, then that really does start with a wholeheartedness at home that flows upward. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, what did Peter? You already alluded to the letter, which I, I loved that example, and, and and just the tangibleness of that and the practicalness of that. Are there any other steps you took at that point to? to get back to a place of health? Yeah, there are several. And, um, you know, the first thing that I did is I thought that just going away for a weekend, just the two of us uh, would bring some sort of healing to years of a pattern that was well-established. And not surprisingly, that didn't uh, work <laughs> and because and it was long-term. Uh, and so it takes a long-term commitment and a lot of hard work to have a great, vibrant uh, uh, relationship. Um, and so a couple of practical things. One is within the sphere of international development, 
Travel is a bear. It is part of the job, but it is a bear to manage. And so we established a travel cap, not just for me, but everyone on staff with Hope International, that we want to make sure that people are saying no to good opportunities and saying yes to the best opportunities to be home. So we have a travel cap uh, for everyone that no one is away from home more than 75 nights a year, which, again, in international development, that is a crazy low number. Um and so the second thing is I wanted to know how I'm doing as a husband and dad. So this might seem a little bit crazy, but started asking Laurel uh, through a series of 10 questions, uh, how am I doing uh, being a husband and a dad? And I wanted to know, am I headed in the right direction? And, and it's true. For any organization, we have our KPIs, our key performance indicators. But I had never asked Laurel, hey, how am I doing uh, showing that I honor and cherish you? I never asked uh, how well we're we're parenting together, um, and so I created a system where quarterly I ask Laurel some key questions of how I'm doing. Uh, third thing is uh, to make sure that I am home at a certain time, and it counts as one of my nights away if I'm not home at that. And then in a connected world, I literally am separated from my phone. It goes in the drawer uh, because I just don't even want the temptation. I am unavailable uh, when I get home uh, until after my kids are in bed. Um, and that is the family time yeah. and, and those simple things, again, you've, you've spoken on them. They're simple things, but I just commend them, uh, to actually making it happen. And I've, I've so appreciated, I know you've had some engagement as well with Praxis, but they created this little rule of life for redemptive entrepreneurs. And I just wholeheartedly endorse it. It's a free download if anyone wants it, but it's a lot of these simple, practical things to frame the work that we do within the broader context of God's redemption work. Remember our place in it and out of that to change some of the habits and the ways and the practices that we do to make sure we have a rootedness, we have a groundedness, we have practicals, we have a rule of life that is going to allow us to do this good work, uh, but to do it in such a way that the ones closest to us do not pay a price that I believe they they, uh, they are not asked to pay. Mm. We'll, we'll share that rule of life on the show notes for this. And let me ask you too, Peter, the, the questions... Uh, that you asked your wife. Are the, do you ever share those as well? Yeah, I'd be happy to yeah, share them as well. That, you know, I think that would be great for anyone to do, right? Uh, <laughs> sure, absolutely. I won't share my scores yeah, yeah. on them, but I'm happy <laughs> That's to share okay. We won't the go questions. there. <laughs> um, in terms of the, the technology, you mentioned cell phone when you get home. I have that same, the same habit. The phone is out of reach from the time I re- arrive home until the kids are in bed. Um, do you have any other tech rules that you have, have set uh, in terms of, you know, keeping technology in its proper place? Uh, you know, I mean, we've read the TechWise family by Andy Crouch. Yep, yep. Uh, we have tried to implement uh, some of uh, those things, the idea of a Sabbath, uh, no screens, limit time, always in, you know, uh, spaces, family spaces, not in rooms and yeah, so I, I feel like there's nothing kind of new or innovative. Uh, it's more, uh, I think that our kids are going to tell us what we did wrong uh, in uh, 10 years um, on this, uh, but trying to figure it out. And I think the big thing with that is, is there a, a uh, an intentionality of making sure that we are not replacing the human uh, with the digital experience? Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I really, I commend uh, Andy Crouch's book. I found that super 
super helpful. We do have a contract of uh, the rules of engagement for uh, technology in our home. And, and uh, but I would very much say we're all still trying to figure this one out as parents. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I really do feel like the use of tech is one of the um, most significant choices we'll make today, you know, in terms of where we allow it and where we don't allow it uh, in our lives. And I, I know for myself, the, the one you mentioned specifically of when, you know, when I get home from work, just being fully present with the family. Um, and then for, for me, first thoughts in the morning, you know, I know if I wake up and, and look at my phone and have it on, I, I, someone else is deciding what those precious first thoughts of the day are going to be, you know, and it's going to be uh, some, some problems, some crisis, whether it's a news feed, whether it's uh, Twitter, whether it's, and so I just, I turn on air, airplane mode. And when I go to bed, uh, before actually a little while before I go to bed, so that my last thoughts of the day are also not determined by um, others, and then leave leave it that way until I've spent a little time with the Lord at least, and then then allow other people to jump into my brain and tell me what to think about. That is so good. That is one of. Uh the Praxis Rule of Life uh, principles as well is uh, scripture before technology uh, as well. I love that. So, Peter, your um, your most recent book, Rooting for Rivals, which I would recommend to anyone here. Um, some might see that book as a very different conversation than what we've just been talking about, uh, about uh, family health, about spiritual health, about soul vitality. Um, but... I know you believe, and I believe these themes are really inseparable. Um, so we'll get to that in a minute. But, but first, just give us the core argument of, of rooting for rivals. Uh, yeah, and you know, my guess is that we all feel the division in our world, right? It's almost impossible not to feel it. Uh, we are living at a moment in time where there is a whole lot of division. And I believe that the experience of individuals looking at the church uh, is an invitation to say, is there a different picture? Or is the same division that is out there, is it also within the church? And if we're honest, it is in there, the division within the church, and, and maybe we're a little subtle in the way we talk about, let me tell you how my ministry is different from that other organization. In a subtle way, let me tell you why my approach is better than the others. Let me tell you why, if you're really serious about addressing orphans and vulnerable, let me tell you why this approach is going to be the very best one. Let me tell you. And, and what does that do? It sends a message to a world that this level of division is no different within the church, and that stands in such stark contrast to the prayer in John 17, where Jesus prays that we may be one. And so my my heart, uh, my hope is that uh, we would act, we would serve, we would live differently. And so we, we interviewed the very best, most generous uh, leaders that we could find, individuals that had a different approach. And what we found is they answered some questions differently from the rest of the world. And the first was they believed and lived as if their mission w did not stop at the organizational boundaries. They had clarity that they were to seek first the kingdom of God. They had clarity that it wasn't just about uh, one organization, but it was the expansive kingdom of God. And then the second piece is they believed in a world of abundance, not scarcity. They refused to look at someone else's success as somehow threatening, uh, meaning there's less for them. And so it really was a discovery process to learn from some of the best, most generous, most open-handed leaders, individuals that model a posture of 
uncommon unity and to say, what are they doing differently? What do they believe and what do they do? And how can we have more of that within the church today where we act, we live, we serve as if we are on the same team and not these little divided uh, sub-clans that... that, that actually undermine our broader and more important mission that mm. we have as followers of Jesus. Mm. So good. G- give us one example. You know, just where a place where you saw an uncommon open-handedness. Yeah, one of the best things about this uh, book and the writing process was my eyes have been open to some really great and creative options uh, that people are doing to live this out. And again, Capo is awesome in the way that it is bringing together all kinds of organizations, no egos, no logos. Let's come together for a bigger cause and let's develop friendships. And so uh, I celebrate, Jed, uh, what is happening and what you have been been leading in in an in, in important moment in time. Uh, and so I really do see that as an example and I celebrate. One of the other maybe well-known examples that's happening right now is that uh, there was a foundation executive that told me that he had a few years ago three different Bible translation organizations come together and they were each pitching the same translation they were pitching the same people group everything was the same and this unnecessary replication was slowing down the ability for scripture to be in every language. So a group of donors, a group of organizations came together and initially they thought the Bible was going to be translated into every language by the year 2150. Now it's on track uh, to be done by the year 2033. They took 117 years off of the pace of progress simply because they were willing to develop relationships. They were willing to create a database to make some of this information available, the Illuminations Project. And 117 years, that's multiple generations that now we're going to have scripture in their language because of this uncommon willingness to partner, to collaborate, and to have a vision that extended beyond the organizational boundaries. And what is true in Bible translation is true in orphan care. What is true in poverty alleviation, it is true in college ministry, it is true It is true in every sector that it is possible for us to accomplish more together than we ever could alone. Well said. Well said. And I, you know, I love how you articulate there and in, in the book that this is not just the right thing to do, but it is, of course. And it's not just um, showing the world that unity which God intends the church to show, which it, which it does. But but it really is more fruitful. Um, and 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 like you're describing, I I have the privilege of seeing this day after day when organizations that are that are serving vulnerable children do leave their logos and egos at the door as imperfectly as we're always going to do that as humans, but really seeking to do that, coming together and joining in shared initiatives. It is so beautiful to see the good fruit. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And again, the best part of the whole writing project was after the the book was released, getting emails of other individuals saying, let me tell you about Mm -hmm. another example Mm -hmm. where I'm seeing this right now. So far from uh, being pessimistic about the increased cutthroat competition that is oozing into the Christian ministry nonprofit world, I am seeing a different tide of, of collaboration, partnership, and uh, I am thrilled to see that continue to grow and, as a result, uh, again, be more fruitful, as you just said, and impact more kids, more families around the world. Mm, yeah. You know, Peter, I haven't mentioned this to you before, but I I was thinking a little while back about if, if I were to go back in time to, you know, when I was relatively new to the 
um, Christian Alliance for Orphans World and working with a lot of organizations. And if I were to have made a list of the, you know, five or ten organizations that were most open-handed, that, that I saw always willing to, you know, do a phone call with a newcomer or share some, something they developed free of charge, uh, help out behind the scenes. Of course, many of these organizations help the infrastructure of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, providing office space, providing staff, volunteers at various key moments, you know, sharing sharing resources in a lot of different ways without asking for, hey, but can my logo be on the front? Or, you know, they without asking for credit, they just truly are the most open-handed. And then if I, you know, we're, we're not, not that I would ever do this, but we're to kind of think in my mind of those who are the least that way, not bad people or bad organizations, but just a little more concerned about their turf and their territory and their brand. If, if I were to put those two groups on a list, if I had done that eight years ago, today, and I think about that, those groups that are the, were the most open-handed then, those are the ones that have grown the most. And I, I think that it's both God's blessing as well as kind of a law of his universe that that open-handedness, that sowing of seed just brings good fruit. And it is just beautiful to see. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. It is it is kingdom economics. Uh, he who sows generously uh, reaps generously, and I, I that actually would be a fascinating study over time because I really do think uh, it's the right thing to do, regardless of results. I, I, it's yeah. the right thing to do, but the results uh, I would not be surprised if that idea was replicated in a variety of different spaces. Um, and again, this idea of is it abundance or is it a scarcity mindset? Uh, there is more than enough for all. Uh, when, uh, yeah, five loaves and two fish, they've always been enough when, <laughs> when Jesus is involved. Yes. So let's now kind of tie this back into the conversation about soul health and, and you know, that the inner life. Um, you know, it's, it strikes me that it is so important that if, if we hope to be the kind of people who can can do what we're talking about, consistently root for rivals, not just when everyone's noticing, we say, look how unselfish I am, I'm putting this other, you know, but, <laughs> but really those times when it hurts, right? When someone else is kind of going to get credit for some good stuff we did and, you know, our donors aren't going to know and, you know, and it's it really feels like something to our loss. That's where the rub happens and that's where it takes more than just a success success ethic, right? It's it's got to come from something deep, from some soul health and a connection to Jesus Christ. I believe um, that that is the wellspring of, of all of that. And, and so, I'm just curious what what you would see. Are are there certain um, habits, uh, rhythms of life? That, that actually may underlie this good fruit you're describing in terms of rooting for rivals. Mm, yeah, and I think you're, there, is, there is unquestionably a connection between uh, the idea that it's, it's all about me, it's all about my organization, it's all about my performance, and burnout. Um, mm, yes. You just you take on, you take on, you take on, and and eventually you crack. And the irony, it's almost like what we were just talking about, the organizational, the individual leaders that have this idea that, you know what, we're doing something 
beyond our capacity. We're doing something that would be impossible to accomplish alone. And therefore, let's figure out who else is doing it, who else can carry the load, who else we can partner with, who else we can join hands with in this good and important work. That actually refreshes your soul and and means that you don't have to take on everything. So there probably is a separate correlation between this idea of, of maybe inflated importance. If I don't do it, it will never get done. And, uh, and, and actually going to the dangerous place of burnout. Um, mm. and you know, Jed, one thing that connects just with my season that was really, really a challenging season, uh, is the mo- the craziest thing happened that when I started having limits, um, instead of feeling constrained, I felt free. Mm. Um, and mm. instead of, uh, you know, support going down because I couldn't show up at every event. Support went up because other members of the team did a better job communicating <laughs> the mission of the organization and you're able to do more. And, and so instead of decline, it actually opened up doors to incredible health and vitality and growth in a season that I am thrilled to be in and, and some new partnerships that we have. It's opened up, uh, we have a new partnership with Compassion International that I am thrilled about where, where we're going to do more together than we ever could think of doing alone. And, and to the list of, uh, other, uh, friends that have come along and the gift of those friendships, uh, it, it is a season of freedom and growth and vitality. Uh, as we become more and more open-handed and seeking to think beyond just the organization. Uh, so there's some correlation between, um, yeah, I've got to do it all in burnout versus there's no way I can or should do it all and freedom and, and greater uh, growth and, and, and greater impact. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, it strikes me that so many of what we would call kind of the, the classic spiritual disciplines or habits – um, whether that's taking time away from the crowd in solitude, whether that's just some of the simple boundaries that we're talking about here in terms of even technology, um, the idea of a, of a Sabbath rest uh, each week, all of those directly cut against, they, they violate the idea that everything depends upon me and my hard work and my achievement, right? Because they are, they are essentially taking you out of action for either short periods of time or even longer periods of time, like, like a sun, full Sunday would do, or even, you know, a time of vacation every year. Um, and, and they, they violate that, but ultimately that is, Teaching our, our soul, hey, it does not depend on on us and our wisdom and our ethic, our labor. It, it really, ultimately, God is working even when we're not, and we can rest in that. We can take joy in that. We can see others move forward and 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 rise as we pull back and and uh, and then ultimately, when we return from those spaces away, we have so much more to offer others. Ah, uh, yeah, well, well said, and I think this is where. Uh, leaders, uh, individuals involved with organizations, the example matters. Um, and mm-hmm. so we have a real simple, uh, policy at hope, uh, that is Sunday. Like we better not see any emails going on that day. Um, yes. cause it's not just, that's not just impacting you and, and making it clear you're not, uh, having a time, but, but that's actually sending the wrong message to the organization. And so just one simple practical thing is, is to make sure there is one day where there is not going to be that email traffic, um, on that. And, and as a simple reminder, as you said, that this world is, it's not up to us to save it. Um, uh, they're already 
he is the Savior. It's not you and me, so we work hard, uh, but we are not afraid to rest, uh, trusting in God's uh, goodness um, as well. So, yeah, I, that idea of a Sabbath rest, I think that is critical, critical for the health, the vitality, and the reframing of the, the work that we do. I, I love that you brought that up. Mm. Yeah, I, I I feel like truthfully I would have burned out a very long time ago if if that hadn't been a part of my life and and it doggone it it still is hard uh, at, at times just feel like oh I've got so much to do I would feel more relaxed working than <laughs> than taking time off and yet you know as I you know week after week seek as, as a spiritual discipline to carve that time out uh, it uh, it's such a gift such a gift yeah yeah. Well, Peter, as we wrap up here, uh, just would would maybe frame a final question: is if you're if you're speaking to to younger folks who are young adults, students who are kind of at the front end of a journey of you know they they want to serve the Lord, they want to serve people in need and work of of justice and mercy. Um, what what counsel would you give them? Uh, whether it's particular practices or rhythms that you would encourage they establish, or or other things that you just encourage them to keep central. Mm. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, so much of what we've been talking about, uh, don't wait until a moment of crisis to put these things into practice. Don't wait until you feel that this is a necessity. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I know there's been a lot of talk, and I'm so thankful for, uh, you know, Bob Buford and the halftime movement. But I guess my heart has always been, if those things are true, uh, why wait until halftime? Um, why not put them into practice now? And in a similar way, if these things are true, and I believe that they are, the earlier you can put them into practice of having those boundaries, of having the spiritual health, of, of deep connection, of not letting uh, your newsfeed be the first thought uh, of your day, of having a Sabbath, all those things, they really do make an impact. And so the earlier you put them into practice, the, the better. Um, so I love that on a personal um so I guess the advice is don't wait. Uh, put them into practice now. From a professional standpoint, you know, I think that there is uh, oftentimes this idea of, well, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. And there can oftentimes be this sense of disappointment if the right door doesn't open at exactly the right time. And I guess I would also encourage you just be patient in that process. God is not uh, wasting opportunities. Oftentimes we're hard to kind of see how they all fit together. And it's only in retrospect um, but I would say that God's at work. And if you feel like you've got a job that isn't exactly in the, the sweet spot, uh, do it well, learn everything that you can engage and, 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 and trust, uh, that God is going to use even that season, even that time, uh, for his purpose and his plans in you. Mm. So good, Peter. Well, Hey brother, loved having this conversation. Thank you. Personally, thank you. And thank you uh, on behalf of all the folks who will, uh, I think, draw wisdom from you as well. Uh, it's such a privilege. Thank you. And love not just the work that you're doing, but how you are doing it. So yeah, truly, truly awesome to have time with you. What a tremendous conversation. And as we wrap up here, I just want to encourage you, if something has sparked in your heart, act on that. Don't wait. If it has to do with rooting for rivals, go ahead and put it into action, whether that's helping or aiding or cheering on someone who may be considered a rival to you. Or perhaps it is putting into practice one of the, the habits that enable us to become the type of person who is more able to root for rivals, whether that is having a weekly Sabbath in your life or 
governing the place of technology within your day. Or maybe it has to do with your commitments at home to look more carefully at your travel schedule or your work hours or to dare to ask your spouse some of the questions that Peter asked his wife. The choice is up to you, but I would encourage you, don't let the day end without having set something in motion, something that enables you to be the kind of person that five or ten years from now is indeed known as someone who roots for rivals. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Medefint, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit kfolk.org.